this reading has nothing to do with anything, but I like it, and as we wait for the last couple of people, this is an um, old uh, interview with a teenage lama. So this is a Tibetan teacher, you know, uh, supposed reincarnate, and, um, but he's growing up. He was born in India to a Tibetan mother and an American father, recognized as a lama, and um, lived in the monastery till he was seven, and then they moved to Wyoming. And at the time of this, it says that he's the youngest Buddhist teacher in the United States. The interviewer asks, it must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? His name is Pema Jones. He says, it's kind of weird. I have two older brothers and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimp O'Shea. <laughs> the kids at school don't know I'm a llama. I would never tell them. Why not? The interviewer asks. I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when someone... I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese. But this is America. I gotta live here with my own karma. Some skinhead doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp my head. You're in a gang? It's just for protection. <laughs> it's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own but by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we please talk about something else? Sure. Do your students, uh, sure, do you like your students? Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. What other stuff? Mainly they talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about their problems with their wives, and women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough time as it is with school and Little League and my chores, and they want me to be a shrink or something. I'm only 13. I mean, I got girlfriends and all, but... What do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psychologist. <laughs> I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking to me about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brother and sister to Dairy Queen. <laughs> It's cool. 
Shrimp O'Shea says, Buddhism is no big deal. It's just like being a doctor. <laughs> There's suffering. You diagnose it, give someone a prescription, and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to become pharmacists and sit around discussing different types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine and come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong. Buddhism is a choice. So you're fully qualified to teach? Sure. I mostly teach Tonglen, giving and receiving. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically a giant filter, like an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air and you breathe out pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. <laughs> I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? It's a samsara and nirvana thing. If a guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he doesn't really exist separate from me, you know? It's like he's dissing himself. That works fine. But what happens when he stops talking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anyone. Don't you see any contradiction in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence, despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Pema Jones starts laughing. Oh, yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. What do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate moves on him? No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun, he's going to pop a cap in his ass. Some good teachings in that, mostly, I think, is just fun, the kind of real, I mean, there's, there's American Buddhism, all right, you know, 13-year-old Tibetan Lama in Wyoming. Um, and some good teachings, especially that part, right, when he's talking about nobody in America wants to go to the doctor, go, go to the, take their medicine. We all just want to talk about it, be pharmacists, discussing different medical treatments and never actually treating the suffering. A real trap. Well, I just want to say, now we have the pleasure, the blessing of having the Dalai Lama last year. And we volunteered and I was working in one of the parking lots and happened to be at the one next to where he was going to spend a day or two. 
big guy and made me look like a little bitty guy with the whole Honolulu SWAT team with their <laughs> giant rifles. Yeah. Jack Hornfield tells this story about when the Dalai Lama was here for a teacher meeting that we had and about how all of the Secret Service were here and all of us that came up had to go through the medical detectors and all of this stuff and how the, the Secret Service, um, after the teachings, were all sort of lined up to get their picture taken with the Dalai Lama. And, you know, these are people who've, you know, protected the heads of states and kings and, you know, presidents and... They said, but, but being with the Dalai Lama is so wonderful because he treats us like we're special rather than all of these other uh, dignitaries that we treat that you know, we're, they, they act like they're special rather than the Dalai Lama treating us like we're special. It's actually in this room, I don't know how many people read Dharma Punks, but when I met the Dalai Lama and he came up to me and he looked at my tattoos and he said, very colorful. <laughs> it was right here in this room. Want to uh, shift into a little reflection on where we've been so far in that first day's exercise of admission of of uh, and normalizing and sharing of our story, where we've come from, and what happened to get us here, and what it's like being here. And that intimacy and that risk that so many people took to really uh, drop into to telling the truth. How rare that is in our world. And then yesterday's exercise of starting to really look at what's in here, this sort of inventory process. How does Mara, this sort of suffering, and manifest the greed? What's, what, how does it manifest in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts? The hatred, the delusion. And uh, the next step, I think Kevin spoke about it so well last night about how important it is to share, to speak our truth to each other. Remember how somebody said, you know, it's amazing how you can really just do this and how important he was talking about. It is. It's the tradition in recovery and it's the tradition in Buddhism. Uh, in monasteries for nuns and monks, they get together at least once a month and all uh, admit to each other their faults. Admission of fault ceremony on a regular basis. Get together and say, this is how I have been suffering. This is the training rules that I've been breaking, the precepts. And it's a deep, long Buddhist tradition. And of course, it is uh, the fifth step in recovery. To get together and to admit our faults and uh, share our stuff with each other. That's all I want to say about it for now. I've asked uh, Jake to speak a little bit about his experience with 
the importance of this uh, intimacy that we're about to do. Just put the Everyone's looking at me, <laughs> taking an inventory of myself right now. Um, God, every time everybody said anything all day, I knew I was going to have to do this. I've been like, I was going to say that. I was going to say that. What am I going to talk about? They keep saying everything that I'm going to say. Um, but I guess I'll just share about the importance of talking about what's going on with me and the role that's played with me in my life. Um, I grew up in a really great house, and um, one thing we didn't do, though, was really talk about how we were feeling. I can still remember every time that my mom or people would start talking about feelings, my dad would get this look on his face, and he would just kind of go, <laughs> and this is the hand for being like, I don't care what you're talking about, this is a little bit too much for me, you're going to have to take it to your girlfriend's. You know, and uh, something I didn't learn. And just recently, I realized as I've transitioned into this new job where I have to talk about my feelings every day to kids in high schools and try to get them to talk about their feelings, that I actually don't even have any vocabulary around my feelings. Somebody asked me how I'm feeling, and I just can't even put words around it because I've never talked about it. And I didn't even have words like, I mean, I knew the word embarrassed, but when it came as to being about how I felt, you know, I wouldn't say embarrassed or lonely or scared, all these different things that we feel all the time. And, um, and another thing that, I noticed, that I've noticed recently in talking about my feelings is that in AA, and I'm going to get to that in a second, is that we talk about what happened to us and the events that have taken place in our life, but very rarely do we actually talk about how it felt and the effect that it had on us. For me, my first step was, I mean, the first time I did a fist step was about um, eight years ago. And um, I had moved from Virginia where I'd grown up. I had developed a heroin addiction when I was 17 years old. I begged my parents to send me to rehab and just knew that going to this, this horse ranch outside of Seattle was going to be the best place for me to go. I really want to go there because they said that I'd be able to have a dog. And it was a lie. And I never got that dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt lonely. No. <laughs> but so I'm at this recovery center. And like, I had three days before I was going to the recovery center at home. So I took a bunch of acid and smoked hash and just got really high, even though I had, got, I had had like 21 days of sobriety. And I begged my parents to send me to this place so I could stay sober. I didn't know what else to do other than to get high before I went. So um, I did that, and I got there. And my family couldn't really afford to send me there. Um, my grandfather was using up all the college money that he had saved up for me. 
And um, I got there and, and I kept drinking. And uh, so after that, I was like, all right, I'm either really going to get into this AA thing, which my family had been trying to push on me my entire life. But I was like, especially because they were trying to push on me something and authority and me and these things really don't mix very well. So I always said I wasn't going to do it. So I ended up being like, all right, I'm really going to do the 12-step program. I'm really going to get into AA. So um, I'm at a horse ranch. The only person I can find to sponsor me is a cowboy. <laughs> and um, it was a different type of fifth step and fourth step that I did with him. It was the type of recovery center thing where there's a printout, you know what I'm saying? And like you're just like, okay, I did this, 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 and this. And um, I shared everything that I could think of with him. And he was like, okay. And that was pretty much it. What I got from it was different than what we talk about a lot of we're expecting to have this feeling of like, I have this huge weight lifted off my shoulders like immediately and we're supposed to go like dance around and do all this fun stuff. Um, what I got from, from doing that first fifth step was just the ability to be on the level with everybody else. That I didn't have to carry around these feelings of hiding things anymore and feeling embarrassed about them. And it wasn't a feeling that I got immediately after doing it. It was a feeling that I got of just, you know, like I can look anybody in the face. I don't have anything that I have to hide from anybody anymore. But I still felt like I felt bad about everything that had happened. Um, you know, I had some um, things happen with molestation um, that I blamed myself for. Um, and uh, so a lot of issues around resentments towards my mother. She divorced my father. And um, I still carry that stuff around with me. Um, and I did, I did another fist step once I got another sponsor. Like, I left, I left that ranch, and I got a guy who, like, we really did, like, the whole, like, traditional AA thing where, like, we go through the book line by line, and we're highlighting stuff, and he's, like, making all these weird connections that I don't really understand, but he's telling me this is, like, this is how you really do it. And I went back, and I made all my amends to everybody, and, um, and still, I, I still had this sense that I had carried around with me for a very long time, that I'm just starting to figure out now. Um, and it was the feeling that I would get. And the only way I can say is like this embarrassment feeling. Um, and um, I can remember it because for me, I was a really like loud kid, really loud kid, for whenever I get excited. And my father, not being one who liked to talk about feelings very much, would always just look at me and go, tell me to be quiet. And, and this would happen to me every time I got excited. Like every time almost it felt like. So I'd be getting really excited and then I'd get hushed, shushed. And like I remember how angry I would get around that and how embarrassed I would feel. Almost like this feeling less than, like what we were talking about earlier about like you're always feeling less than somebody or better than somebody. And that was like, it would just make me feel low. And I've been carrying that feeling around with me my whole life, and I'm just starting to figure out like the threads that go with that. Um, 
And I'm continuing to figure these things out because I'm continuing to talk about what's going on with me and how I'm feeling on a regular basis. In talking about the things that happened, um, I'm working for this company now. And um, what happened was I got to a point when I came to Buddhist practice of um, I had been doing a really intense practice with Native American stuff for about four years when I came here. I've been doing lots of sweat lodge ceremonies, singing, drumming. Um, and I'm still really involved with it. But I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I, need, I have to have a daily meditation practice. Because I was tired of hurting all the time. And I came to Buddhist practice because I didn't want to have to hurt anymore. And I didn't want to have to feel lonely anymore or like, you know, kick to the side of the curb whenever people didn't like me and everything like that. So once I started meditating, I stopped crying. I realize now that I had used Buddhist practice to shield myself off from all the bad feelings. But the way I did that was I also kind of shielded myself off from experiencing joy at the same time. So instead of like really getting excited, it's like, it's cool, you know, this is impermanent. Because I had realized that even when I get excited, even if I didn't get shushed, you know what I mean? I get excited about this new girlfriend, she's going to dump me. Like, why am I going to get excited about it? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, this is good, but it's going to end. It's always going to end. I shouldn't even get excited about anything anymore. And the same deal with all the bad stuff that would happen. I block myself off from experiencing grief, and I just go meditate act like I'm kind of trying to feel it, but I'm really sitting there trying to realize how impermanent it's going to be and that it's going to pass. So I don't really have to feel anything. And I was feeling like a zombie. And I didn't know what to do anymore. And um, so I decided that the only thing I would do was to find the people in the world that I are feeling the most. <laughs> and the people at my job feel more than anybody I've ever met. Wow. And, um, and what they've taught me to do, um, more or less, is just what we're doing right now. And that's just to talk about how we're feeling on a regular basis. And not even like on a regular basis, but it's like the more we do these things, it's not... The point I'm trying to make is, and I feel like I keep saying the same thing, which is a little bit embarrassing... Um, is that like we do a fist step once and we're like, look, we don't have to do an inventory anymore. We don't have to keep talking about these things. But we do. And it's helpful. And I'm not trying to say like you got to get into your groups and tell everybody that's happening like everything that's happening in your life. But it's a good thing to do to whatever level you're comfortable with. One of the things Noah talks about a lot is that every time we get hurt, we, we put a, it's like we wrap a piece of rice paper around our heart. And for every hurt, we keep like blocking our hearts off a little bit more. One of the things I realized today was that like maybe every time we put that piece of rice paper around our heart, there's another little story about something that happened to us. And every time we take a piece off, you know, that's another, another story. Um... And um, the reason I was talking about that feeling that I 
felt when I was a kid is that recently I've realized that I've been feeling the same feelings my entire life. And I've been telling the same stories to myself my entire life in one way or another. And that I feel like it could be that we all have stories that we've been telling ourselves our entire lives. And we might not be very aware of it. Just like we could not be very aware that running up and down the aisles trying to decide between whether frozen corn or fresh corn is good, you know? <laughs> so every time we do this, we have an opportunity to see deeper into ourselves, deeper into our lives, and the way we've been doing things. Um, so now, I'm going to end with this. The place that I'm in now is where I've really been hoping to get. I don't feel like I'm very cut off anymore. I actually cried for the first time in like almost five years the other week. And I didn't cry because I remembered something really bad that happened to me. I cried because I remembered how beautiful a family that I had grown up in and how scared I was to admit it. I remembered running around the corner with my brother and seeing my parents kissing on the beach when I was a little kid. Um, I'm at a place now of seeing the potential that Buddhist practice has to bring us to with our hearts. Like how much joy we can actually experience. How much that we can actually love as people. And it's one of the more exciting places that I've ever been in my entire life. So thank you. So the 12-step programs know the importance of sharing what's true with each other. That's what we do in meetings. That's what we do with sponsors and in inventories. And certainly Buddhism and the Buddha knew the importance of sharing what was true and normalizing the suffering and the that everyone has Mara. It's not just you. Ramdas put it like this, and this is really kind of where we're, where we're going this afternoon. Ramdas said, It's taken me a long time to even comprehend that my own healing would come when I could open myself to suffering. It just didn't compute somehow for me. It scared the hell out of me to open my heart to the suffering around me. I was so sure I was going to drown in it. It would take me over. It would possess me. But the minute I started to open to the suffering, to be with it, to acknowledge it, I started to feel this incredible peace. And that's the peace that 
Jake is talking about opening to in his experience. And has certainly been true for me. And is the peace of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree when he meets Mara and that inventory and the greed and hatred and delusion that attacks him. It's the peace of radiating kindness and honesty, compassion and forgiveness towards him by fully acknowledging what's there and no longer suppressing or ignoring anything. So we would like you to uh, get together with your small groups that you had on the first night. If you remember, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Do you remember your groups? What number are you? Okay, good. Did you not get a small group? No, I didn't. Okay, so we'll get you one. Anybody else not get a, a small group? Okay, so I think that the way we're going to do this is... Um, Group one with Angela, yeah, can go um, into interview room one downstairs. Group two with Jake can go into interview room two downstairs. Group three with Pablo can go into the uh, council house down the, where you registered. Group Four with me will also go into the council house. We'll share that space. And five, six, and seven will stay in this room, spreading out kind of five, six, seven, so that you're far enough away from each other. Um, and you're welcome to join my group, four. Anybody not know what their group is or where you're going with this? Please bring your journal. You're going to have the opportunity to share some of your inventory, but you don't have to. This is uh, an encouragement and part of a process that we're in, but trust yourself. Don't uh, share anything that's too much for you. Trust, trust what's right for you in this process. Shana. Good, so uh, please make your way to those groups with your facilitator. Do we have enough chairs down there? Should people bring them? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.